Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. There were nine papers in New York, and they were all I think, nearly all dailies or weeklies or something, but they were all necessarily fairly big papers. I mean, I'd worked for two papers with million, two million, three million circulation, but basically I'd always been very interested in little papers. Although there's plenty little papers in England, or there was hardly any of that type of journalism, hardly, hardly any papers in the States, if any, for young people or younger people. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media or just media in general. About a month ago, journalist Sandra Sorensen reached out to us to tell us the story of John Wilcock. John was a pioneer in the underground press and alternative press in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. Not only did, was he one of the people who helped found the Village Voice in the 1950s, in the 1960s, he hung out with Andy Warhol and uh, helped launch Interview Magazine. He also penned the autobiography and sex life of Andy Warhol, which is a well-known book. So John has been there and done it in the alt-press space. So when Sondra reached out to us, I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring somebody in who would give us a little history of uh, his own personal experience, what things were like in the alternative and the underground press in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. John, despite his long career in journalism, is going through some uh, difficult times financially. He's in assisted living in California, and some of his friends have put together a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for John to help him through the next couple of years. Their goal is to get eighty thousand uh, dollars. If you want to help John, you know, after you listen to this podcast, uh, go check out his GoFundMe campaign. I'm going to go ahead and uh, have that link with this story on our website. I could have gone on and talked to John for hours, but I, I really didn't want to tax him too much. But uh, what we do get from him is is some insight into, you know, his experience in the alternative press, his relationship with Andy Warhol. At one point in it, I, I did want to point out that a friend of his, David Burens, who had helped me set up the interview, you know, speaks up and, and helps uh, John to answer questions. So if you hear that other voice come in, that's David. I'm going to get out of your way now because I've blathered on quite enough. And uh, let's hear what John has to say. Well, you've had a pretty uh, wide-ranging career. So tell me about sort of starting out as a journalist. What got you into journalism? I didn't know I left school at 16, and I'd already been writing messages and notes to each other and stuff. I guess I was always a newspaper man, even before those, even before I grew up. So tell me about your early days in New York and uh, the founding of the Village Voice. So how did that come about? Well, I came from England, and uh, I was used to a lot of little papers and stuff that they weren't here at the time, and... Um, I tried to uh, get a paper started, and I met some people, but we didn't, we didn't get anywhere. And then less than a year later, they called me up, and they'd got the money. So five of us, two of them and two other people and me, started the paper. At the beginning, I was a um, news editor, and I was writing not terribly interesting things, but 
I've pretty much always done a column or written the kind of stuff that goes in a column. And um, so after about a, less than a year, that was what I was. I was the columnist. So what was it you were trying to do then at the beginning with the Village Voice? There were nine papers in New York, and they were all nearly all dailies or weeklies or something, but they were all necessarily fairly big papers. And um, I was used to it. I mean, I'd worked for two papers with million, two million, three million circulation, but basically I'd always been very interested in little papers. And the, although there's plenty little papers in England, or there was hardly any of that type of journalism, hardly hardly any papers in the states, if any, that uh, were, were for the you know for young people or younger people. I say younger, young younger people because we're talking about people in the teens. So in America, when you talk about a community newspaper, usually you're thinking of somebody, who, you know, a paper that's covering like the city council or schools or something like that. But the Village Voice was something different, partly because, yeah. because of what the community was. How would you describe that paper at the beginning? Well, it's pretty much as you already described it. It, was, it appealed to people who didn't take the other papers and weren't much interested in kind of daily news, but were interested in people and what they did. And we had everything in there, sport and, and um, just every every type of thing except, you know, current news. And you had some, you know, people who were, were well-known who were involved in it. Uh, Norman Mailer was involved at the beginning as well. You know, who were some of the people who were involved early on? Well, Norman Mailer's sister was going out with one of the guys at The Voice, um, he was editor officially. I mean, the five of us were all basically the same, what, level, but um, he was editor mostly, officially. And actually, he was the one who read all the boring things and and so on. But um, the paper had no real ambitions at the beginning, except to be an interesting paper for people like us. We felt that all the papers that existed then were for different people, adults. <laughs> I read a little bit about, uh, I read that comic strip about you in some of your early days. You started off doing a lot of interviews. Can you tell me about, you know, as a journalist, you know, what what was it you were trying to do with, you know, when you were interviewing people? You know, what was your approach? Well, what I was doing as of the first month or so was doing a column. And the column at that time was a lot of different things usually, or if it was one subject, it was very short about that one subject. The column then was on the basis of becoming what it became later, which is a column which was very hip and uh, the latest things that you should, didn't know about and things that appeared that maybe papers, papers, English papers that I happened to read. And a lot of the stuff in there was not in an American paper, but I, I used to get a column from all over. Uh, I know I was going to talk to you, ask you later on about you were producing videos about travel. Tell me about being a travel writer and, and producing those videos. In the early days, I was working for $5 books, which is uh, so-and-so on $5 a day, which sounds impossible now. I did New York on $5 a day, and I forget what others, several others. The only the only travel writers, really, really, were uh, wrote for big papers, 
and really there wasn't that much shuttle riding even but I mean, it was not. It was the thing that was known. You know, all these the very clever literary people writing travel things. And whereas our paper was, our paper was always for another generation. Instead of all the current things that were going on, we wrote about things that would be going on, or whatever else that was interesting to us. But I say that kind of amusingly because I was ten years older than all of them. Even then, I was in my 30s, going up towards 40, and most of the people there were in their 20s. I always read read things that were very simple. My objection to travel writing then, and to some extent today, is that they're all there to show how clever the writer is, and they don't cover the job. That's a secondary job, you know? Because it's supposed to be useful, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about that you were writing for people who were like in their teens and their 20s. Um, this sort of s- speaks to like alternative journalism and un- underground press. And that's something that you've kind of been associated with for a long time. What sort of drew you to doing that type of journalism? Many of the papers were, um, were just covering different things. We were covering things of interest to us who were younger uh, and not uh, grown-up type stuff, you know. I mean, I use use that amusingly because most of the people there in the 20s or the most 30s, I was probably the oldest person in the underground. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know how to go back. It was 60 years ago. I noticed a piece in the somewhere in the paper today talking about how the voice will be 60 years old very soon, and so. Um, a lot of the people that were working for it had never worked for papers before. The editor hadn't. It's very difficult to say what we did, but we wrote We wrote about, if you, if you think of all the things that are current at any time, think about the things that 10 years before being current, and, and that's basically our area. Let's, let's talk about then about uh, the 60s and your involvement with Andy Warhol and uh, the creation of Interview. How did that come about? Andy was um, his uh, photographer, or rather, whoever you know, whoever handles the camera when you're playing it back. Jonas um, Jonas Mikas. Yeah, he told me about Andy and said, "Why don't you come along when we make one of these films?" And I said, "Oh, I can't do that. I don't, don't know anything about it." He said, "Oh, yes, it's all right. Just just come along and keep quiet, and you know, you, if you don't have to say very much, it wasn't matter. Be able to see what goes on." So I went to uh, a screen. A, not a screening, but one of the early movies that Andy was making. And um, it just fascinated me, the, the way it was all put together, these little bits and pieces. It seemed like so amateur, but it, it finished up with something. And um, I, I got more and more involved. I, 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 I used to go out with them. I, I went to the West Coast with them. I went to, to somewhere in the Middle West, in the middle uh, of the country. I got I got mixed up with Andy, and because I was a, probably um, a useful person never around, and not somebody who caused a lot of trouble, I sort of kept my mouth shut. But I got so that I could talk to Andy. I mean, very few people actually can talk to Andy because if Andy would if somebody would say something to Andy and say, "Oh, really?" He'd say, "You know, you never get a proper answer out of him." So if you knew him and you learned better, you'd didn't uh, you didn't you didn't raise subjects except I rarely because people who did raise subjects got very non-committal answers and yet they seemed like answers but he hadn't said anything 
Now, you ended up writing a book about him, The Autobiography and Sex Life of Andy Warhol. Yeah. Uh, so how did that come about? Uh, when he started, I, I just saw him occasionally, but after a very short while, I found myself going up nearly every day to his factory, factory he called it, to his studio. I found myself going up nearly every day, and, and I was fascinated. I became very much a fan very early on, and, and then I used to go out with them when, when they all went out on things together. Or I remember once, for example, we went to, um, we, uh, there were seven or eight of us that night. We went to a, a screening, which was on uh, Fifth Avenue somewhere. When we got to the place, uh, everybody was, it was when, the, when the car stopped and people started to get out, there were only, as I say, five or six of us. But um, anyway, he, Andy was not the first person to get out. Uh, I, I think, um, I forget who it was, but one, one, one of the other people got out. And uh, the, guy at the, uh, in the, the guy at the movie theater had heard this party was coming and was determined to welcome them and all the rest of it. So he started welcoming, um, not Andy, because Andy hadn't got out, out of the car by then, but um, uh, his closest person. I don't know why I forget names. All the time, if anybody wants them, I forget names. But um, one of the people who was employed by Andy, in a sense, he was working, helping get things done and so on. He advanced first. And the guy at the, um, guy, who's, the guy who owned the movie theatre uh, and welcomed him as Andy, and nobody ever told him any different. Certainly Andy didn't, because that was exactly the thing. He loved things like that. So what was Andy like as a person? You know, you, you kind of became a fan of him or became interested in him and, and began hanging around with him. What was he like in the way he, de he dealt with people? Well, some people are kind of a bit scared of him because he, he was a bit of a, a hard nut, you know, and um, he, didn't, he didn't talk to people. And if you started to talk to him, you got these, you know, sentences and, and it never actually turned anybody down, but... After a while, you gave up. You couldn't get anywhere. So most of the interviews with him in the early days just don't say anything. I saw him once bad-tempered, and that was when somebody at one of the screenings, or when they, when they laid up ready for the screenings, somebody sort of grabbed something they were going to work with, and then they rushed forward and said, stop, stop, stop. But that was the only time in every, all the years I saw him, and all the times I saw him, I never saw him bad-tempered. I never saw him shout and scream at anybody he just didn't he, he was content to be quiet and it was even his sense of humor is easy to be gained when you hear that somebody else has introduces him and he doesn't make it he doesn't change the thing and you, you go all evening with this other guy thinking he's andy and, and the guy himself thought he thought it was andy but none of the people here well with with me they did, they never enlightened him so, which sounds pretty funny. Um, he sounds like he had a really good sense of humor. Was it difficult to write a book about uh, Andy? Oh, no, it wasn't at, at the time, because at the time it was mostly, I wrote, very rarely have done a book about a person. I've often done a book about people, uh, maybe a group of people. And he, he certainly was, I mean, he was in one of, the, one of my books, and um, he's hardly quoted at all. Other people are, but he's not. But that, it didn't bother us because we, you know, we were used to it. It took a while to understand what Andy was, what he was doing, and 
and why he frightened people. But after a while, you understood his point of view, you know. All right. Well, now I saw that you, you said that you interviewed a lot of people and you started Interview Magazine with Andy. Um, yes, he started. My, it was my idea. His title, but it, my idea to do because he, he called up one day when I, I knew him fairly well, but you know, hadn't known him that long. And he called up and said, "Oh, and it was whining about how one of his problems was he was always annoyed by the fact that nobody took him very seriously, and especially when it came to money. And he always felt that he really hadn't any. He had actually, actually, he was fairly well off, but he always sort of acted like he had none. And and then um, so." He called one day and said, he very, very rarely called me. He called one day and complained about this afternoon we spent in, or meeting, not a meeting exactly, but a group of people spent the day with them. He was complaining about, you know, nobody paid attention to him and he went anywhere. And so I said, well, why don't you start a paper? And then all my friends start papers, which is true, there were an awful lot of by that time, there were half a dozen underground papers spread around the country, most of which are in touch with each other or in touch with us as sort of headquarters. And it, it was new to him. So he hung up, making no comment. And about three minutes later, he called up and said, what kind of paper? <laughs> so we, also, we both said, I mean, I said, well, it would be about film, and you know. And I mean, were it not for the fact that I was right in the middle of doing my Japanese book and was just either just come back from Japan or just about to go. I, I really, although I was listed as as uh, assistant editor in the very first issue, I didn't I didn't have anything in that issue. I don't think I don't think it, I'm not sure I ever had had, had anything in that paper. But um, it was my idea and my title actually. And uh, you see, these things never. There are always people like me in the background, and people uh, do things, and they either are well known or become well known. The people who started it all are just, you know, not not part of it. They're forgotten. Yeah, I, and I thought it was it was interesting that you said about interview, and then also a little bit about the Village Voice is that you were you were a journalist. You had had experience, and when. Yeah. And when um, the interview came up, you suggested, well, let's do, why not do a, a newspaper? Because I have all these friends who do n newspapers. So tell me about the alternative press at that time, the, the underground press. The so, underground press just came out of, I mean, we started to have meetings and get some papers in or be in touch with papers in another place. I mean, the underground press at one time had many as 200 papers all over the place, London and God knows what, were all part of our UPS. And um, the underground press existed from about 1966 to about 1972. And after that, they may have called themselves the underground press, but they were very different. They were, you know, people, grown-ups who acted like in a civilized way and, uh, and, and, and didn't play around. I mean... Uh, when I say we play, played around, we actually were very serious, but uh, we weren't tied down like the straight presses, which doesn't say certain things and hasn't can't say things in a certain way and uh, will never indicate anything and all the rest of it. We were totally free and easy, printed anything that appealed to us.
So was the underground press of the 60s and early 70s very different than the early Village Voice? Yes, you could, you could, you could just say that they progressed. Well, actually, right from the beginning, we were di very different from the Voice because the Voice was always a, uh, a regular press paper, whereas nearly all our papers were underground papers. And what were the types of subjects that you were covering in the underground press? Oh, God, I can't remember now. All <laughs> kinds of things. I mean, <laughs> all well, yeah, lo lo lots of different things. The underground press, basically, in the early days, consisted of people who either had some experience in newspapers or wanted to have, and most of all, felt like the underground, like the society was, there were things that weren't spoken about. I mean, it's like, for example, when I first arrived in New York, it was about the early 60s, and um, if anybody smoked pot, nobody ever talked about it. It was never discussed and never seen. I've never heard anyone talk about it. And then as soon as it became well known, it, it was banned. What we're going through now is the first time since those days when it was banned, when it's unbanned, basically, that the whole crowd today who were like people of the old days, oh, they can't do very dangerous stuff, you know, you can't, before you smoke these things you've got to know what they're going to do and you've got to be ready i remember when well in the six late 60s probably by the, or it might even be the 70s by that time but i remember that people were very cautious i mean i've been smoking for uh, 1960 i smoked i barely uh, drank since i've never drank any occasionally champagne maybe and maybe once in every three years, something else. But basically, I drink beer. <laughs> and, well, the fact of the matter is that most people today are in an entirely different world. That They're looking at things, they're looking at this stuff that was very illegal and now it isn't. And I was, I was with it in the days just before anybody thought about it. It was there, but nobody, nobody thought of it making it legal or illegal. It was mostly a black thing anyway. Now that it's legal in California and in other places, do you think people consider it differently? Eventually, it'll go back. To, it'll gradually reach the state where it was when it first when I first knew it. It was it was basically available, and nobody thought about it. And it was there, and even even now, with the people that smoke, a lot of them don't think, even think twice about it. They, they smoke and regard it as part of the life, you know. But, but there were all those years when just to be caught with them part would maybe send you to jail for years. Mm. Now the world, or rather the English world, is um, celebrating the fact that, um, you know, this, this stuff is nice and maybe it's good for you and all the rest of it. But it was always to us, it was illegal, it was a drug. We didn't think of it as being good, we just liked it, you know. And um, it's funny to have come to the stage where where people are now smoking it legally again, you know, for the first time, because before they smoked it legally, because nobody cared about it being any other thing. Well, I don't want to hold you much longer, but let me ask you this. Looking back at your career as a journalist and as a writer, what, what things stand out to you? Oh, I don't know. I've always, I always loved travel. I've, seen, I've been in 11 countries, and I've lived in about five or six of them for a period of time. And, um, and now I, I'm, I'm beyond my travel days. I don't even care about travel anymore. But I, I was always known, if I had to be known as anything, I was known as a travel writer. And yet, 
when you look at my career, I've done 40 books, a hundred uh, um, sort of desk video shows. Yeah, yeah, no, apart from the video, I've done a hundred normal movie things. I've done them all myself. I didn't, I didn't make money out of this ever. But but I was a, you know, you could say I was a, um, a movie maker for ten years. In spite of the fact I did everything else, I was doing columns. I was then by then doing columns for other places as well. And um, I was traveling and uh, I had a book on Japan. And even to go to Japan in those days was cheap. It, you know, I used to, it, in fact, one of these books was Japan on $5 a day. Yeah, I don't think you can go to Japan on $5 a day anymore. Well, it would just be a joke today. <laughs> Is there any particular, which of the 11 countries that you were in did you enjoy the most being in? Oh, I don't know because most of those book, uh, most of the early books, of course, I had the book. I had the book because I was doing a book about that country, so I was there on business. There are also a lot of places, obviously, that I did, though I wasn't working. At least I wasn't doing a book. And maybe uh, I, I dare say every, everything I've been through, I was a writer and writing something about it. But uh, the, the books were the ones that I, you know, put a lot of work and time into, and and. Um, I re re revised them two or three years and then sort of moved out of that area into other areas. Looking back at your career, what, what how would you sum it up? What were you? Were you a writer, oh, a journalist? So, so, many, um, so many things. You could, you could say I was a, a novelist, not a novelist. You could say I was a, a book writer, a magazine, uh, several magazines I worked on. I collected um, things that I wrote from, so, that, so that my... Thing might uh, one time might have been for ten years. I did a syndicated newspaper, not for many. I mean, just happened, happened to be my work. I never really was paid for underground stuff. I just kept writing, and one of the reasons I'm broke today is because I never really made any money. I used to do things because I loved doing it, you know. Well, I think this has been great. This is a good point for us, I think, to wrap up. I appreciate you giving me your time, sir. This is really fascinating. That was a great conversation, I think, with John Wilcock, uh, a real pioneer in the alternative and underground press. I would have wanted to talk to him much longer, but I didn't want to tax him. If you feel so inclined, please support him on his GoFundMe. I'll include the link to that on our website. I wanted to thank uh, Sondra Sorensen for reaching out to us and bringing John's story to our attention. If you've got a story that you think other journalists would be interested in hearing, drop us an email. You can send us an email at editor at itsalljournalism.com, and uh, you may be on our podcast. Next time on It's All Journalism. And now we can both look at what is happening real time on your site, how people are engaging with your content, and then also look at uh, things historically. Where do your loyal users fall? How are you growing new users? What platforms are they coming from? And so all of this is a voice of and a feedback me mechanism of your users telling you what they're interested in, what they're, where they're coming from, and how you can use that data to empower the way that you think about your content, you think about promoting that content, and you think about reaching the potential of your content through that data. In our next podcast, I talked to Shachin Kamdar, co-founder and CEO of the data analytics platform Parsley. We talk about how you can use data to better engage your readers and help inform your decisions about digital content. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media.
Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, A Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.